0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Many years ago, I was flattered and honored to be recruited to the world famous Cedars Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. That institution and the amazing people who work there have remained in my heart. Today, I'm really delighted to have Dr. Bruce Gewirtz, Surgeon in Chief and Chair of the Department of Surgery at Cedars, as my guest. He's also Vice President for Interventional Services, Vice Dean for Academic Affairs, and the H&S Nichols Distinguished Chair in Surgery, as well as obviously being a professor of surgery. He's a busy man, so I'm happy he could make the time to join us. Bruce is also a very kind and gentle chap who I'm privileged to call friend. The good professor completed the Pennsylvania State University and Jefferson Medical College combined bachelor's and MD program. And after med school graduation, Dr. Gewirtz trained in general and vascular surgery at the University of Michigan, a fine institution, then served on the faculty at Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas. Before joining Cedars-Sinai, he served as the famished professor and chair of the Department of Surgery at the University of Chicago for 14 years, making a dramatic and profound and lasting impact on that department. Bruce has authored more than 250 original articles, book chapters and books, including the Atlas of Vascular Surgery and Surgery of the Aorta and its Branches, and we'll get into his other tomes shortly. Bruce focuses both clinically and in the lab on vascular issues like cerebrovascular disease, aortic aneurysm, and mesenteric ischemic syndromes. His basic research into ischemia reperfusion injury and endothelial cell physiology has been funded by the National Institutes of Health and the American Heart Association. He's also addressed regional disparities in the provision of surgical services and was the principal investigator of a $4.4 million project funded by the Department of Defense on the optimization of human factors in civilian and military operating rooms. Bruce has received numerous prestigious awards for his basic investigations and teaching and is widely sought after on the the lecture circuit internationally. He's editor emeritus of the Journal of Surgical Research and is consistently included in the list of best doctors in America, who's who in America, and who's who in the world. If there was a who's who in the universe, Bruce would be in it. Dr. Bruce Gewurz, welcome to the EMJ podcast.
1: Well, thanks, Jonathan. I, I'm both honored and embarrassed by uh, that recitation. Thank you.
0: Well, the, the issue of writing is editing. And, and you know, as I was making some notes as to how to introduce you, I think I started off with about 20 pages of notes. So I'll tell you what, Bruce, let's start at the beginning. Tell us about how you got into medicine. I always like origin stories and what made you want to be a surgeon, then your specific specialty, and also, you know, about taking leadership roles.
1: Well, when I when I was young, I had, I had many interests. And one of the most significant experiences I had was uh, between my sophomore and junior year of high school, a very well-meaning and delightful chemistry professor, uh suggested that I go to a National Science Foundation program in inner-city Philadelphia, where I was raised in the suburbs. I spent the summer there uh, doing uh, research on uh, cerebral trauma. And the next summer was selected to continue uh, a similar program at Roswell Park Memorial in Buffalo, which, as you know, is a fantastic and world-renowned cancer center. So as a young uh, kid in the program, I was, for whatever reason, uh, I volunteered because I said I had done surgery before on animals uh, to do a a very arcane procedure, which was cannulate the thoracic duct in rats. And the whole purpose of the experiment was they were going to take rats that had cancer and extract their lymphocytes and infuse them into rats uh, that were naive and then were inoculated with a cancer-causing agent to see if those lymphocytes could prevent uh, cancer. But my role was simply a technical one. Could we cannulate the thoracic duct in these little rats and, and get the lymph? So I, I must have uh, spent uh, half the summer and untold uh, hero rats looking for the thoracic duct, figuring out how to put a polyethylene tube in it, and it was just a fantastic challenge. And when I was finally capable of doing it, people from the other labs in, in Roswell Park would come by my lab, and I was developing quite a practice in cannulating thoracic ducts. <laughs> in labs. And and one of the surgical fellows uh, who who uh, was in the lab suggested that I might want to see a real operation. So I I was uh, bundled over to the operating room and allowed to scrub in on a, a major removal of lots of organs that I don't recall at the time, but on the uh, way out, the uh, senior surgeon said to the residents, please remove the appendix. And they said, well, you know, Bruce has been doing some surgery. Would it be okay if he did it? And the surgeon must have thought I was a resident or something. And he said, sure, no problem. So one of the residents helped me deliver and uh, through this huge incision they had made, remove an appendix. And it was unbelievable for a 16-year-old to have the opportunity to do that uh, safely under supervision. And I remember, I I just felt that I was doing something that I always uh, dreamed of doing and what I wanted to do, which was surgery. And I remember that night I called my mother back in in Philadelphia and said, Mom, today I removed an appendix. And she said, well, appendix must be really small in a rat. (laughs) And I said, "Well, it it wasn't a rat; it was in a person." And my my mother, who was rarely left speechless, uh, didn't say a word for a few uh, minutes. Oh, but that, is- that really <clears throat> convinced me that I wanted to be a surgeon, and I wanted to be a surgeon as quickly as I could. One of my friends from uh, high school had uh, matriculated to this five year medical program, where uh, it was an experiment to see how quickly they could train physicians, and The program was one full year at Penn State, where you did all your pre-med sciences all in a row and bunched together. And then presuming that you did well, you were sort of guaranteed acceptance to Jefferson Medical School in Philadelphia. So I did that program, and I spent one year in college with a bunch of uh, science courses, but also had a very good time in college and then was uh, accepted to medical school where I started medical school just as I turned uh, uh, 19. So it was uh, quite an experience and uh, I was sort of thrown in the deep water, uh, but it enabled me to graduate from medical school at age 22 and and begin my residency at Michigan. Fantastic, I I
0: have a question for you. How big is the thoracic duct in, in a rodent, a rat specifically?
1: yeah well you know my, my assessment of it at the time was it was very very small it fit into the very very small category but i'm sure it's you know half a millimeter or you know quarter i mean a quarter of a i mean it's small trust me and i had this little pathetic operating microscope which was just basically a big lens that you positioned over the rat and uh it was definitely trial and error but uh, eventually I succeeded, and I'm not sure I'd be able to do it now to tell you the truth.
0: Well, I, I also have to tell you that um, we're going to deny culpability if anyone comes along and wants to whisk you away for what you got up to as a 16-year-old. I think that's a great story. Um, Bruce, changing tack slightly, um, I didn't know this about you but until you told me that you were the technical advisor for an Academy Award-winning film The Fugitive with Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones back in 1992, based on a TV show, I remember it. You helped put together the medical plot and you also appeared in the movie. Come on, you gotta tell us how you got that job and what it was like.
1: Yeah, well, it it was pure serendipity and uh, along with other things, had a profound effect on my life. Uh, They were uh, planning to film this movie in Chicago in uh, 1991 or 1992, and uh, they had lined up Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones and other prominent actors. But the script had sort of not come together. And as you know, uh, these people have windows in which they do these things. So they were sort of desperate and they were scouting locations around the city of Chicago. The director, Andy Davis, was from Chicago and liked shooting there and had a magnificent feel for the city. And they they scouted the University of Chicago. And during that time, I met one of the assistant directors. And the next thing you knew, one day I came out of the operating room and sitting in my office were the uh, director, the screenwriter, Harrison Ford and and uh, sitting there having coffee in my office. And uh, we started talking about, you know, how the the script could be configured. And as you may recall from the original uh, TV show and the uh, the actual crime by the way that that spawned that tv show the protagonist was a neurosurgeon who had theoretically been unjustly convicted yeah. and uh so we went out to dinner that night and had a big discussion and i immediately changed the protagonist to a vascular surgeon and uh, we came up we came up with a a drug an early statin drug which were just coming out at that time uh, that they were trying to cover up side effects from, which was the motivation behind silencing this doctor. Anyway, uh, the uh, screenwriter went back to the uh, hotel uh, to uh, to write the script and uh, Harrison Ford, who was um, try- now had to become a vascular surgeon, uh, started showing up in my operating room and learning the clamps and learning the lingo of vascular surgery and uh predictably and this may not come as a surprise to you or your listeners he's a terrific guy and actually very good with his hands as he uh moonlighted as a uh, carpenter when he was a young actor in between roles and he got the hang of vascular surgery pretty quickly and they filmed this terrific movie which is really an exciting chase movie and, and a very well crafted uh movie in many ways uh and uh during the, the final days of shooting of the movie, uh, they called me up and said, would you like to to film a scene for the movie? Maybe it'll get in the movie. And I said, well, you know, to be honest with you, it's sort of not my line of work. And and furthermore, I've been up all night, and uh, I had a take back abdominal aneurysm that I had to control a bleeder on, and I wasn't in the best shape. But they insisted, and Harrison Ford told me, he said, look, if you're not in the movie, nobody will know that you contributed to this at all. So uh, I went out to the sound stage, and sure enough, Tommy Lee Jones and I wrote a, a brief scene, which we played out at two in the morning, real time. And oddly enough, and to everyone's shock, it made the cut and was actually in the movie. So um, this has given me absolutely unparalleled recognition, including today. <laughs> well,
0: uh, I. I... You know your point about Harrison. I had the pleasure of meeting him through our shared passion for aviation, and um, met him at a dinner in, in in Washington DC, and sat and chatted with him. Uh, he's a very actually, I found him to be a very shy and retiring, very understated, and a very polite gentleman, and a very knowledgeable man. So it's it's lovely to hear validation of that. So let's move on to surgery. Since joining Cedars. You've grown the Department of Surgery and raised its national and international profile significantly. You now exceed 32,000 procedures a year, making it one of the largest surgical programs in the country. NIH funding to the department has dramatically increased to multiple millions annually, um, placing you among the top 10, ten in, oh, I'm sorry, top 20 in the country. You'll get to the top 10. Um, how? What, what, what have you done? What's the secret?
1: Well, you know, every every, uh, soccer coach and football coach will tell you uh, it's all about recruiting and it's all about creating an atmosphere where great people feel that they can do their best work. And we have been very uh, gifted by a a terrific location, a great facility and some financial stability, which has been unusual in academic medicine over the last uh, 15 years. And as a consequence, we've been able to attract uh, both those senior people with worldwide reputations, uh, Armando Giuliano in, in breast disease, Ed Phillips in uh, GI surgery, and other people that you know, including the great George Percy And we've been able to recruit these people to Cedar sinai and they have done all the heavy lifting. And I see my job very much as uh, providing an environment that they can do their best work and spend their most time doing the things that are important to them and in fact important to society and to our patients.
0: Yeah I think you're being very humble but yes you are you are correct it is a team sport Um, but you know continuing the theme of leadership a while back you and David Logan released a book a best-selling book on leadership entitled The Best Medicine of Physician's Guide to Effective Leadership, which I've read. It's excellent. Damn good. Talk to us about your inspiration for writing that and maybe a few takeaways listeners can absorb before they rush online to buy a copy.
1: <laughs> oh, you're very kind. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Dave Logan is a brilliant uh, fellow, and uh, I had the great good fortune of being on several panels with him at national meetings. Uh, Dave's background is he was an associate dean of the business school at University of Southern California, and a true visionary who wrote a uh, New York Times perennial bestseller called Tribal Leadership, which discusses the culture within successful and unsuccessful organizations. And I was very interested at the time, and still am, in uh, what's loosely uh, grouped as emotional intelligence. That is, why do some people interact well and productively with others while equally talented people that don't have that mysterious skill set, uh, wallow and are unable to form meaningful relationships. And as a consequence are less productive. And I would go around the country at the time and uh, exploring this with surgeons. And very often I would be on a panel with Dave Logan and, uh, when I moved to California, it was my great good fortune that he lived here in Los Angeles and uh, we could work together uh, more directly. And we felt like a a sort of handbook, if you will, uh, that would give people the skill sets and enumerate those skill sets that allow you to work productively with other people. Uh, so many times people think that, that, uh, the best uh, person to lead an academic unit is the most erudite, most scholarly, the one with the most uh, uh, research grants or papers, when in fact the skill set of leading an organization uh, may not parallel the skill set uh, required to get the most NIH grants in our country. Yeah. So um, that's sort of the theme of the, of the, uh, of the uh, book. Uh, that, that there are various stages in one's life uh, that you progress through. And at each stage of that progression of leadership, there are important lessons to be learned. And that each of those stages is important because of the uh, accrual of those skill sets. And that if you skip a stage, you better pay a lot of attention to developing the skills that you would have otherwise uh, gotten. Uh, during that time period. Uh, and uh, there has been a great degree of resonance with it. The book came out in late 2014, and it's still an Amazon bestseller list uh, for management books for medicine. And I'm very proud of that and particularly uh, grateful to have the opportunity to work with Dave Logan.
0: Well, um, hopefully the numbers are going to spike. So moving on to um, another another book, I mentioned that you know, and you know, I've been a keen pilot for many years, and there's been a lot of talk comparing risk mitigation in aviation and medicine. Uh, a couple of years back, you co-authored a textbook based on your research in human factors, uh, human factors in surgery, enhancing safety and and flow in patient care. Tell us some of your observations on that topic.
1: Well, you know, like any high risk industry, uh, medicine uh, has the propensity to uh, have its mistakes uh, cause. Uh, egregious side effects for patients. And that's certainly true in aviation, uh, in commercial aviation in particular, when you're flying around hundreds of people in a small silver tube. And it's unfortunate, but in our training, uh, historically, surgeons and doctors in general were not given much training on how to be safe. Even though, as we all know, the uh, prototype of medical advice is first do no harm, uh sometimes in our enthusiasm for the things that we do, uh, we don't acknowledge that if we don't pay careful attention to every uh, step, um, patients can be harmed. Uh, I'm sure that you're like me. When, when we get uh, uh, something for a holiday present, we start putting it together before we read the instructions, only to read the instructions when we find ourselves in a, a blind alley. <laughs> I think to
0: eat.
1: <laughs> and surgeons surgeons have that personality, and as a consequence, uh, we don't always take into effect, I mean into account the the thoughtful enumeration of where our therapies could go wrong, and what mistakes as human beings we could make because we all know that humans are not perfect, and it's very important to pay attention to every step. And never take for granted uh, that that uh, that what we'll do uh, is perfect. And you know, as as uh, as they say, you need to to measure twice and cut once. So human factors is about understanding how to uh, accommodate uh, for the fallibilities of human beings.
0: Yeah, it's um it it, it it's a very very important approach because it does. It does necessitate uh, self-doubt and self-doubt is not compatible with doing surgery, nor flying airplanes. You have to have a degree of confidence in what you do, but also to have an orchestrated means of self-doubt. So clearly you're a very busy man as you know, as I've I've hinted and you've demonstrated. I always felt that if a person did a job they love, they'd never work a day in their life but work-life balance gets bandied about a lot. Talk to us about
1: that. Well, that's absolutely true. You know, I think it's, it's very difficult uh, to retain your enthusiasm for a job uh, indefinitely. I have a very close friend who's a brilliant man and a great uh, human being named Frank Mancuso. And Frank was head of uh, MGM Studios and Paramount Studios, and he retired when he was 72. And he's remained incredibly engaged and vibrant and a major contributor now up to the age of 89. So as we got to be very close friends, I asked him, I said, Frank, you you haven't lost a step. Why did you step down from being studio head, which in our city is, is you know, like the president of the United States? And he said, you know, I got bored because before every meeting started, I knew how it was going to end which I thought was a very interesting concept, which is how many times can you do the same thing and retain your enthusiasm, no matter how much you've loved the job. So in my particular career, I had the great good fortune of uh, building a department of surgery, which had sort of fallen on hard times at the University of Chicago, building it back to the stature uh, of the past under the leadership in the past of uh, the great Dave Skinner. And, and I've now had the opportunity at Cedars to considerably expand the academic footprint in surgery such that every one of our surgical programs is ranked in the top three in the United States by U.S. News and World Report. And at some point, um, no matter how much you love the job, it's sort of wise to get out of the way and, and let somebody bright and new come in and, and uh, have the enthusiasm that you had the first day you showed up on the job. So even if you do not have uh, uh, the, uh, the title you had before, uh, it's very good to be challenged with a new adventure. And I think that, that uh, one of the keys, uh, I mean, what you say is absolutely true. If you find the right job, uh, you'll never feel like you're working, but you also need to, to accept new challenges. And sometimes after 15 years or so, uh, it's hard to find new challenges within a job that you love so much. Now, the, the other question you asked is about work-life balance. And I can tell you that, that, uh, uh, I have not mastered it. Uh, when I uh, did even more surgery, uh, I was endlessly worried about my patients and their recovery. Uh, now that I have a, a greater number of complex and, and very difficult administrative challenges. Uh, I still find myself at home thinking about those. And it, you know, I don't know that anyone who is really committed to something and uh, wants to be uh, successful and to help others around them be successful can really turn it off. Uh, But it is extremely important to have some degree of compartmentalization uh, such that you can live a normal life. And uh, because, uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh no one uh says that they wish they spent more time at work you know when they're on their deathbed.
0: yeah yeah absolutely but i think we're very privileged in medicine to be doing a job that really matters and you you talk about being at home concerned about patients i'm sure you're concerned for a patient whose aorta you've done um it's probably a different level of concern than a, a a committee meeting subcommittee report um it's just it is somewhat different. Well, also on the, in the same vein, talk to us about fulfillment as um, as a reward for being a surgeon, and and I guess a chairman.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that's a, a a really good word, and it's a much better, more positive word than the opposite, which is sort of burnout. But fulfillment, you know, is the positive side of that, which is you know one of the things that I feel that as surgeons we don't do a particularly good job in, is sort of celebrating our successes. We are so uh, focused on every single patient and getting a good result, and we worry about the patients that we care for, that we, we sort of have lost at times the ability to celebrate the things that we've done right. And I've, I've noticed that we uh, tend to motivate ourselves in athletics and in medicine uh, by fear of failure uh, rather than the joy of success and, uh, fulfillment has to do with looking at your daily activities and, and realizing on a daily basis, uh, how grateful you are to have the opportunity to do them and feeling good about the things that you've done for people and, uh I find that that, uh, you know, thinking on a daily basis of what I'm grateful for and the opportunities I've been given is a far better way to end the day than uh, tallying up the things I've been disappointed in.
0: Right. Yeah, so it's a good way of putting it. Well, listen, you mentioned burnout. It's a big topic of discussion of late. Some surveys show that around 50 percent of healthcare workers workers are suffering. Sometimes young doctors, nurses, and others don't get the professional and personal support they need at work. What are your thoughts on how to best support our colleagues in all spe- aspects of their lives? And frankly, what are you doing at Cedars about it?
1: Well, I, I fear that, that your assessment of it is, is, is correct. I think that the last several years have been particularly stressful for the medical profession and that much has been expected of us. Uh, many people functioned under the worst of circumstances without protection prior to the vaccines being made available. And um, that on the uh, coupled with the extraordinary workloads that the last several years have uh, uh, given us uh, makes uh, keeping a level even keel uh, very difficult. I think that one thing that we can all do which requires zero money, is to be kinder to each other. And, uh, you know, in the old cowboy saying, never is heard a discouraging word, whether it's at a conference or at a coffee machine or walking down the hall, to take the minute to acknowledge each other in a civil and positive way. Uh, We have, as many places have, and I know Great Britain's going through a crisis right now, uh, difficulty keeping nurses uh, in the profession and our doctors say to me how can how can we keep the nurses in the operating room engaged with what we do and and the answer really ain't so hard it's try being nicer to them. people respond to being respected and people respond to being uplifted by a kind comment and you know you probably can't say too many kind things to people there's no toxicity on record. And I think that within ourselves, I mean, there are plenty of problems in medicine, whether it's the electronic medical record, which has become a a burden for many of us, uh, the workloads, which are a burden, but nothing can keep us from acting kindly and supportive to each other and to the people we work with. And if we create that kind of environment, the likelihood of burnout uh, being persistent or significant will be lessened. So what we've tried to do at Cedars, not perfectly, I'd be the first to say, is create a collegial environment where we, if we see something uh, that is unprofessional or the least bit non-collegial, we call someone aside and say, that's just not the way we do it here. And, you know, it's remarkable how a well-placed, thoughtful word like that uh, can make a difference because, frankly... Most people want to get along with people. They just sometimes lack the insight and uh, to know that that their behavior is counterproductive.
0: Yeah, I um, as I've learned more about this, uh, it is apparent that the it's just like alcoholism or any addiction, addicted to bad behaviors, um, negative behaviors, damaging behaviors can rapidly spiral out of control. So for the benefit of anyone who's listening in, it's not just yourself, look for your colleagues and offer a a helping hand um, because it's so, so destructive. So um, seeing as you're such a, you know, provide such wise counsel on these sort of ephemeral issues, as you know, Bruce, I've had the experience of practicing on both sides of the duck pond and been privileged to operate or taught in many countries everywhere has got their problem everywhere has got their problems the rising cost of doing research overheads academic pressures clinical workload keeping you've mentioned keeping workforce what do you see as the key challenges facing academic medicine and what solutions might there be I mean I'll throw one thing out in trying to do sponsored research at an academic medical center, and your budget's going to be a million dollars, and then you discover it's going to cost you one point seven million because there's a seventy percent overhead, and you know trying to figure out where that's going. What 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 do you see as the big challenges, and how can we fix them?
1: Well, I think you've identified one of them, which is the extraordinary cost. The cost, you know, why is there a seventy percent overhead, in in research grants and it's because you know the buildings that are required the equipment that must be maintained uh, the capital renewal of that equipment i know i'm sounding like a, a dean right now but but the fact of the matter is is that the expense is is very very great and i think that we we need to learn to be more focused and more efficient so if you have a department of surgery uh, that is doing research and there are four people or five people uh, doing research in a similar area, but each with their own laboratory that's non-participatory uh, with the other, uh, in which equipment is not utilized 24 hours a day, but rather only four hours a day in six different labs, uh, that, that uh, we need to learn to be more efficient. And we need to have a uh, a more rational understanding of what we, as an individual, can accomplish given our experience and training. Uh, I know that I, I typically interview our young faculty candidates, and some of them have done a modest amount of research during their residency. And they come and they say, "Well, now that I'm an attending surgeon, I'm going to be operating more, and I want to do more research." And I I feel like asking them, as I often do, well, how many more hours in a day do you think there are now that you're an attending surgeon? And furthermore, you're likely to have a family, a husband or a wife, and children, and and life doesn't get any easier. So I think that if each of us was more realistic about what training we had, if we as as a whole would be more uh, thoughtful about combining resources, uh, we could likely at least moderately lower the cost of research in in each department and uh, hopefully be more productive
0: yeah it's um, i think one of the other things is the time it takes to get things done in the academic environment the administrative overload and i think it, i think it merits a really careful look there may be better ways to do it in the future or, or it becomes unsustainable and that delays getting work done. So Bruce, what do you think we're struggling to teach junior doctors and how can we help them do their jobs better?
1: Well, you know, they're smarter in different ways, right? I think that, that, you know, I couldn't believe this when I was, uh, in the dean's office at the University of Chicago. But one of the educators said, well, you know, we should train people just how to find information. We don't have to train them uh, to regurgitate information to us. And, you know, I was skeptical of that. Uh, but honestly, why do I have to memorize drug interactions if I've got a handheld computer in my, my pocket that allows me uh, to find every arcane drug interaction I could possibly want with the push of a button? So I think the way the younger physicians are, quote, smarter than us is that they understand how to manipulate uh, data and to uh, get information, uh, credible, good information at the point of contact better than we did. And all, all you have to do is walk up to the electronic medical record with one of your, your uh, junior uh, house staff and see how quickly they can navigate it and bring the x-rays up. And it would take you and I a day to do that, right? (laughs) The other thing they may be smart at is that, you know, I'm sure we all know of of friends of ours who uh, uh, cut a brilliant path early in their career only to sort of fade early on. And um, a wiser person than I always said that medicine and a career in medicine is a marathon, not a sprint. So if you leave it all out there in the first mile, Uh, you're unlikely to finish that marathon. And I think that maybe our younger uh, colleagues have a little bit better sense of pacing themselves uh, over a longer uh, career, but we'll have to see if that really comes true.
0: We're talking about long careers. Our mutual friend and colleague, George Bercy, who was responsible for recruiting me to the United States together with uh, the lovely Leon Morgenstern, George is 101 and still working, still thinking, still innovating. Uh, when I last saw him, he apologized that he didn't have much time because he had some meetings to go to and some work to do. What What about life after medicine for those of us who aren't as brilliant as George? And for those who don't know, you need to look up this man, B-E-R-C-I. His contributions um, to medicine are are legion, and he's also a very witty and very fascinating human being and a very lovely man. So yes, life after medicine.
1: Well, I would certainly echo your comments about George. Uh, I I've, I would have to say he's one of the most interesting people I've ever met and and uh, a wonderful man and uh, sort of a godfather to one of my young dogs. He's taken such a pleasure <laughs> in interacting with with her. But um, Yeah, you know, I think it's really important to maintain your outside interests. And Jonathan, I know just by you doing this podcast, but I know from our uh, interactions over the years that you have many interests, including aviation and many other extremely interesting friendships that bring you into context uh, that's just different uh, from the practice of medicine. And I think, you know, uh, just being a doctor doesn't uh, doesn't alleviate your responsibility as a human being uh, to things that go on around you and maintaining your intellectual curiosity. And I myself, um, you know, I hope to uh, evolve in a somewhat different way. I've personally uh, been very interested in writing uh, fiction after all these years of writing a whole bunch of nonfiction, I hope, in my my scientific articles. And uh, I, I would like to spend some time doing that and, you know, uh, at a certain point, uh, athletes understand that they have to leave the playing field. And uh, as a physician, uh, we have other things to offer and other things that have a lot to offer to us. And I think it is very important in terms of that work life balance all along to have those outside interests. Uh, and uh, that's what makes you a fully developed human being.
0: Yeah, I think well said. I listened to an interview. Uh, recently, uh, that Roger Federer did with uh, Trevor Noah, who does the, one of the late shows. Very, very amusing, for those who don't know, very amusing South African, um, very articulate chap. And he interviewed Federer. And I don't know a great deal about tennis. I'm an awful player. But what came across was Federer's passion for being a good human being, not a great tennis player. I mean, one of the all-time, if not the greatest tennis player, very, very humble, very understated, considered everything he'd done a privilege, was looking forward to his next set of challenges. And I think it really mirrored what you said. And I think we could all learn a thing or two from uh, from Mr. Federer. So, Bruce, my final question. Um, I'm going to grant you three wishes to improve global global health. What, what, what might they be?
1: Well, uh, one would be the most obvious, which is sanitation. Uh, which contributes to the plague of infectious diseases around the world. Uh, The second would be education. Uh, So people understood, you know, their their health, their bodies, and were able to make uh, appropriate choices if they were mature enough uh, to get the best outcome. And then finally, uh, access. Uh, If there were access to quality health care, uh, even in the developed countries that we know, uh, access to quality health care is not available. So I think sanitation, education, and access would be the things that I think would make the biggest difference uh, to the health of the uh, world.
0: Yeah, well said. And, and of course, access isn't just about... Um, You know, can you make your way across 100 miles of Serengeti to find a doctor? Do you have insurance? Are there doctors in the area? Do they have access to medicines and equipment? It's multifactorial. Dr. Bruce Gewirtz, thanks so much for taking the time to speak to us, for your inquiring mind and endless passion for medicine and for discovery, for all you do for patients and for being my friend.
1: Well, thank you, Jonathan. As always, it's a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Thank you. Well, folks, that's all we have time for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did and will subscribe for our weekly shows. Please tell your friends and like us on social media. Until our next EMJ podcast every Friday, this is your host, Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.